0: Welcome or welcome back to the Bicultural Identity, a podcast created from the experiences unique to young Asians raised in a Western society. We're your hosts, Connie and Jenny. Our weekly episodes contain conversations around social issues, pop culture topics, and nostalgic childhood memories that are significant in our lives as second gen Canadians. Welcome to our special guest this episode. Hello, welcome. Josephine. Hello. Josephine is my very wise friend who is always (laughs) down for chats about literally every topic and like anything activism related to be honest. Do you want to give yourself an intro?
1: (laughs) Honestly, I don't know about why's, but I do have a lot to say about a lot of stuff. So I guess that may be accurate. (laughs) But yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Josephine. I go by she, her pronouns. And I guess in terms of my background, I grew up mostly in Taiwan and I immigrated to Canada with my immediate family when I was 11. And it's kind of crazy to think about because that's more than a decade ago and that means i've spent the majority of my life here in canada but um in canada it's where i met jenny and connie and jenny and i actually met through attending the same program at our alma mater so very happy to mm-hmm. be here happy, to, happy to have, have you, you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we've been um waiting for a while to bring josephine on finally we have her connie do you want to talk about what we're talking about today so our
2: grand topic is about food today i think we're basically talking about our journeys with food um our previous experiences like the disconnect we felt with food and then when we start reconnecting with food in our culture and where we are at now basically
1: Mm -hmm. and i think it's really relevant especially for like people who come from multiple cultures or immigrants because Food is, like, such a big part of your everyday life. It's almost inseparable, I think, in a lot of, like, Mm -hmm. cultures and your identities. And for me, definitely, it is more about survival, so. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll also give a disclaimer. I'm not a chef or a food writer, as you guys know. I've never worked (laughs) in a restaurant or gone to culinary school, so in terms of street cred... Um, The only thing I can claim is that I have a hobby Instagram account where I post (laughs) pictures of bread very sporadically. (laughs) Um, And sometimes I post about the people I share with. So that's kind of nice. But that's uh, cute.
0: Yeah. So we'll link it.
1: This is actually just a plug for my Instagram, no.
0: Josephine's pretty legit. Um, You know when you're like a level above everyone when you start fermenting things?
1: No, you're the one that started making sourdough bread, man. I had to learn from you. I had so many problems in the beginning. Oh my god. But yeah, like, I think now, I think my experience has evolved to, on social media at least, like, it's definitely not something I do very religiously. Like, I don't have a very strict schedule, but... I like to make a lot of different kinds of food and just talk about anything that's on my mind. So
0: it's very relaxed. It's true. I can attest to that. And because she doesn't have a schedule, she keeps like the followers very, you know, held in suspense.
1: Yeah, my one hundred followers.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, I'll give a brief rundown. So I think we, the three of us, are all like kind of around the same age, or basically around the same age. So I can say we grew up in a pretty interesting kind of border time where we kind of experienced that food discrimination or whatever growing up. For sure. Um, So Mm -hmm. we're going to start off by talking about a little bit of what Josephine and, you know, Connie and I went through when we were growing up and our experience with food in that sense.
2: (laughs) Sounds good.
0: Do you want to get us started?
1: Sure. So I guess um, I'll talk first more a little bit more about my experience growing up in an immigrant family and sort of how food is tied to all of that. I think in general, it's such a big thing because... Um, A, everybody kind of has like some tale of eating different kinds of food and it's almost a rite of passage that you grow up and you're uh, made fun of for the food you eat or the way you ate it so I think Mm -hmm. that's like very relevant in a lot of different cultures in particular you know Asian cultures and just in general the awkward feeling of being different like being an outsider that's really relatable Mm -hmm. yeah other thing I wanted to say about food and immigrant families was that it's often one of the most accessible jobs for newcomers to another countries because mm-hmm. you like don't really need to know the language to be a cook, right? Like you just kind of cook what you ate at home and that's very okay.
0: Yeah. That's where you get the uh those internet memes that were kinda of rude where you show like the funny menu translations. <laughs> <sometimes>. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, like, we joke about that, but that's, like, a very real part, I think, for a lot of, like, immigrant businesses, right? And Mm -hmm. people, like, I think recognize that as a quirk now, but it is kind of a struggle, if you think about it, to kind of move everything to another country, and I think we all kind of can relate to that. Mm -hmm. One story I keep thinking about when I think about, you know, immigrants working in the food industry is actually my grandpa, so back in, like, the 1980s, I think? Don't mm-hmm. quote me on this, but my <laughs> mom's side of the family actually immigrated to Canada first. So she, like, did her university and everything here. And to support his family, he actually worked as a cook for a very short while in East Vancouver. Oh, It's very funny because, like, it's like kind of the typical family structure where, you know, the kind of wife does more of the cooking and the husband does more of, like, the job earning. But I think in this case, it was more blurred because my grandpa mm. had to be the breadwinner. He had no culinary background, but he was Asian, you know, so they hired him. (laughs) I believe it was a Chinese restaurant. I hope it was anyways. He actually worked as a cook there for a very short while, and he told me, you know, they would ask for fried rice, and he would just say, oh, like, I I think fried rice has soy sauce in it, and he would just add whatever he thinks (laughs) is (laughs) right into the fried rice. Have you had his cooking before? Um, Yeah, I actually have. Like, now my grandparents, like, being, you know, kind of seniors and kind of living their own life, I think they actually split a lot of the chores now. And my grandpa's cooking is actually quite good. Like, I enjoy going home and kind of eating with Mm. family. So, you know, don't know about the fried rice, but everything (laughs) else is good.
0: (laughs) That's a very real issue, though, because I think some restaurants here that are more structured and established have, like, their go-to recorded recipes, but then we have our local dim sum restaurants that like our family goes to no matter you know what time it is if there's a weekend where we want to go and eat we go to that dim sum restaurant and one day like it was just very obvious that the cook left because there was no yeah the taste changed. yeah there was no recording of his recipes I guess so the taste just completely changed and I think eventually they won him back because now it's good again (laughs) so I don't know
1: yeah it's funny how you can tell right because cooking is a lot of times very personal even for like people who come from the same kind of region. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing about like what is authentic and what is good is oftentimes I find kind of a moot debate because food kind of evolves with the person and with the culture, so. Mhm. It's my experience.
0: Along with the evolving, I've actually noticed a really interesting idea. This is kind of skipping a few topics, but I actually noticed that our food here in like north america has kind of i'd say like it's created almost like a time capsule for asian cuisine from like back when there was like the early stages of immigrants incoming into the country and then when you go back to like when we visit family in china now they take us to restaurants where nothing tastes the same as it does here, if that makes sense. Yeah. When it used to, like when we went 10 years ago.
2: Mm. Yeah. I'd say, like, they try to make things fine dining in China. Like, mm-hmm. they try to cre- have, make new creations, <laughs> like modern cooking or whatever. So then the traditional dishes you see here, the familiar dishes, aren't as popular anymore in China.
0: Yeah. Like, obviously, they stay in the street food side, but the mm-hmm. restaurants have just morphed. Yeah. Like, even with pecking duck.
2: Yeah. Oh, really? Like they I don't understand how they Yeah, <laughs> they make it into such weird, like fancy variations and I'm just like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting
1: how it changes and like even just the Asian quote unquote food here, like there's a variety of different cuisines, but a lot of that, especially Chinese food, has been adapted to Western tastes, right? So like yeah. what we eat here as Chinese food is a lot of times not even like, you can't even find that in China or Taiwan or any of the other a- like, Asian true. countries, right? Like, it's just not the same. Nobody like knows what it is. up Panda Express. Oh my yeah. gosh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, like, going back to, I guess, my experience growing up, it's really a big part of culture and ethnicity and the way that I kind of grew up helping my mom out in the kitchen, too. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's because I was first born, I was also a daughter, so it was kind of natural for me to do that. But I mm-hmm. kind of remember, like, as a kid, like, you know, helping her wash the rice, and you know, she would tell me half the rice <laughs> be in the needs to be in the pot when I get home, and I would do that for her. Um, and when we immigrated here, like, I like gradually helped out a lot more. I think because you know my mom had to take an actual nine to five job, so mm-hmm. a lot of times I would help with the prep, and she would actually recruit me as quote unquote the sous chef. And she told me, what the sous chef did was that you clean up after the head chef, which is my mom. So I would do her dishes as she was kind of cooking a storm through our kitchen. So a lot of that is like thinking back a really funny experience. But at the time I was like, I don't know why I have to do this. Like my friends mm, don't have to yeah. do this.
0: I'm taking notes for when I have children. Oh my gosh. Please don't. Teach young, <laughs> don't do this to your children, everybody. I hate washing the dishes after cooking. It's yeah. the worst part about cooking.
1: As a side note, though, that like taught me a really good um, habit, I guess, as a result of like helping out my mom because I saw how inefficient that was. So now when I cook, I like clean up as I cook Mm -hmm. and it's a lot less at the end. But anyway, (laughs) that's kind of my experience. (laughs) And I think this ties into the second part of what I want to talk about is to actually come to a new place and have all these changes and new things thrown at you and kind of fall out of love with your own culture and your own food as a byproduct of that experience. Mm -hmm. So I think at this point we probably have different experiences. Yes. Yeah, but I think for me the main thing was just I wanted to fit in so badly. (laughs) I had immigrated with my family first to kind of the white suburban neighborhood in BC And Mm -hmm. I just remember, like, the kind of confusion at first, you know, seeing that everybody was obviously very different, like, looked different, dressed different, spoke a language that I wasn't very good at yet, and kind of, like, learning through the experience that I was very different, and I was considered an outsider, and the kind of humiliation and shame that, like, brings onto a child is really devastating, actually, because Mm -hmm. all you want to do is make friends, right? You want to show them that, hey, like... I can speak English, too. Like, I, I like the same things you do. So from that, I really noticed that my foreignness, a lot of it is amplified through the food that I ate with my family.
2: Hmm. I think Jenny and I both felt this a lot, too. I remember most of the white kids in my class would bring sandwiches. Or, Jenny, are you going to talk about the pizza thing? Like <laughs>
0: Oh, please one? talk oh. about the pizza thing. Yeah, sure. I was going to say, like, I know, Connie, you can actually fill in after I go because you might be leading somewhere different. Yeah. But I was going to say that um, our experiences are pretty different from Josephine's because we kind of like uh, were born and raised in Canada. So it was a little different in which we started attending schools, like public schools, and o- growing up on like ordering lunches that yeah. they would, you know, mm-hmm. like send home those ordering forms. Mm-hmm. And like the parents would yep. just pay for these Services, pizza day, hot dog day. (laughs) And then we'd like basically just bring lunch a few extra days, but it was still pretty whitewashed food because I think um, it wasn't so much that my parents, actually, we've never talked about this with them, but I don't think it was because they were worried about like the smell or anything. Mm -hmm. I genuinely think they just thought it was easier to pack Mm. white food.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? Yeah. Because a lot of it is like cold or you can Mm -hmm. keep it like at room temp and... You don't like my one of my like memories of like being in elementary and high school is bring my like giant kind of wide mouth thermos container that had like my fried rice or whatever soup that needed to be warm and like everybody else had like sandwiches or whatever.
2: I was going to say Jenny like you grew up under the impression that we brought a lot of white lunch foods but for me I actually did feel left out sometimes because we did have our thermoses with our fried noodles (laughs) with our soups and whenever those I guess no like I don't know if I'm just more self-conscious than you but whenever I brought those foods and i surrounded by. Other white kids, I just felt super different. And then people would ask, like, "Oh, what's that?" And I'm sure they're just being curious, but it's a little bit like I always felt a little embarrassed. Like I'd have to explain what it was called. Like sometimes oh. back then too, like I only knew the Chinese names of the dishes. I didn't really know how to describe oh, it. True. anymore. Right. We used to bring. <laughs> yeah. People would
0: always ask about balls. Yeah. You know, that like, for sure. Oh, happened. oh I remember <laughs> that. Yeah. I don't know. At the end of the day, I don't think it was like. I don't know we've never been outright called out for it and I know a lot of people actually have Mm -hmm. Um, yeah we didn't
2: bring anything quote-unquote smelly so yeah I think
1: I was also more just self-conscious about it because I like just knew from interacting with with my peers that I was already so different right so like I could
2: mm
0: -hmm. tell
1: that the food I ate wasn't what they ate and that
0: like brought a lot of shame. Yeah, when you didn't get Lunchables. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lunchables. You know,
2: I,
1: I would like I would like make friends and like whenever they would have Lunchables, especially the pizza one, I remember just asking them and then they would like share the pizza sauce and you would like squeeze oh, it on yeah. your
2: finger and you would sprinkle a little cheese on it and then eat it from your finger. <laughs> I totally remember that in elementary I school. I have the <laughs> same experience. And that's another thing. I feel like kids really liked to share food in class back then, but like no one really shared ethnic food. It was always a person who yeah. brought, like, dunkaroos or, like, some really good <laughs> <Yeah>. snack. <laughs> it's never, like, the ethnic foods. No one wants your dumplings, you know? Yeah. Like, when you're, like,
1: fried noodles. <laughs> For like they... reason. Yeah, because they're not used to it, right? So I think, like, kids can be cruel in that way where, like, they don't understand something and they can, you know, look down on it. Sim- oh, oh, really similar with adults, actually, still. But <laughs> my experience is more of, like, the kind of indirect experience of shame for sure Mm -hmm, like I don't I don't remember anybody being particular mean to me and I'll just say that maybe I blocked it out but (laughs) I think that's that's good on my part that I can forget that kind of stuff but another story I wanted to share is actually um, living in my neighborhood as kind of like somebody who like is a newcomer and it's still very white at the time I would say this neighborhood I remember like my parents meeting all of my neighbors and they had invited us to their like weekly soup nights. It was very cute. Like this Aww. this whole block of people, they would get together every Wednesday nights, and um, they would have soup and, you know, just chat at somebody's house. And we were invited to that. And um, my parents were like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, we have to like show these people we're like courteous and, you know, like mm-hmm. so they can welcome us into their community. So my mom... I think right off the bat was like, oh, what do I cook to feed a lot of people? And her idea was, again, fried rice. You can tell Mm -hmm. my mom is my grandpa's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) But she was like, okay, I'm going to make shrimp fried rice. And I remember helping her. And the reason why I remember is that this wasn't just one time, okay? Every time we had soup night, my mom would make shrimp fried rice. And Mm -hmm. the reason is, A, it's kind of easy. But B, my neighbors, like, loved it. They asked for it every single week. So my mom (laughs) brought fried rice to soup night. And I was kind of like weirded out by the idea. I would see like my neighbors enjoying this food. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, my parents would be proud of that. They can make a contribution to the community. And I think that's all very sweet. But the flip side of this is I think the more insidious parts of being a newcomer is you don't always get treated the same. Like when people Mm -hmm. when you turn your back on people. So I remember, like, one of my friends years later mentioned to me, oh, yeah, like, remember we had those soup nights, but, like, I always kind of get the feeling that, like, we still didn't consider you a part of the neighborhood because adults would be making comments like, oh, like, this neighborhood is getting so much more Asian, like, you know, as, oh, if,
2: okay.
1: as if that was bad. And um, mm-hmm. it's, like, this notion of, like, fear and also notion of, like, something being taken away from them right which is like i i think a very white idea a very like mm-hmm. colonialist idea if i can say <laughs> that here um so like my family thought we were welcome but you know maybe behind their doors they actually didn't think that way about us which was mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. very difficult for me to hear growing up i think yeah so
0: yeah that's my shrimp fried rice story <laughs> 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 i'm really good at making I- it now <laughs> i will say like Connie and i grew up in also a white suburban neighborhood mm-hmm. i don't think asians have taken over here no in our street. definitely not but mm-hmm. there have been more people like more grandmothers doing exercises in the park together oh so yeah' it's it's so it's like a neighborhood thing
1: <laughs> yeah i think it's definitely something that's happening everywhere around the world mm-hmm. especially in like the more urban cities in canada like over the past what like 15 years there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot more immigrants coming from different places and I think there's a particular group of people that feels threatened because mm-hmm. they thought this was their land but now you know there's so many different kinds of people and it takes some time getting used to
0: and is it their land <laughs> uh, Is it? Hmm. <laughs> future episode maybe <laughs> anyway you were saying
1: yeah just kind of moving on that my like experience growing up in this neighborhood i think the context on asian cuisines especially 10 20 years ago lacks any sort of nuance and understanding mm-hmm. like a lot of people even now still think that msg is bad
2: yeah and
0: yep.
1: a lot of people think chinese food is you know cheap takeout food that is like very unhealthy so you should only indulge once in a while yeah even the history of canada has systematically discriminated against like a lot of different immigrants And particularly Mm -hmm. for Chinese people, you know, we learned about the head tax in school and how, you know, they had to pay literally money to come live Mm -hmm. in a country where they wanted to make their lives better and send back money to their family back in China or wherever else. Mm -hmm. And we don't recognize that a lot of Canada, the very critical parts of the infrastructure, like the Canadian Pacific Railway is actually Mm in large built by Chinese immigrants, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) So I think what my family and I experienced as a result of like being newcomers to this neighborhood is just a lot of that attitude, right? It's like hostility, kind of like us versus them. Mm. Um, That's something I unfortunately had to kind of live through as a child, but not really understand. So it was very confusing. Yeah, right. And the last thing I guess I will say on this topic is just at the time I was... You know, trying to understand how my peers lived and kind of how their home life was compared to mine. There's definitely an emphasis on more individuality, and I think you guys talked about this in your previous episodes too. So I was kind of thinking, hey, like, why can't I be like my friends? Why can I not, Mm. you know, be free of all these expectations that were placed on me as a result of my culture and. Kind of traditional values right yeah mm-hmm. and a lot of my mm-hmm. identity kind of shifted towards being wanting to be associated as more quote-unquote canadian and more white so a lot of my food choices as a result changed because you know i didn't want mm-hmm. to be asian anymore mm-hmm. i wanted to have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches which as we know is like kind of not the greatest sandwich but I want that every day. I love peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's fine to eat, but when you're like a kid, that's like the stereotypical food to yeah, request. Yeah, yeah, it's basic. Right? It's basic, and it, it can be really comforting. But I think I gravitated towards that because I saw other people eating this, and this was like really accepted and really normal. And I, I just wanted it to be normal. That's mm. it.
2: When I think about it, that's like yeah. not very nutritious as a lunch.
1: <laughs> no, not at all. And like. I also had experiences of, like, ordering school lunch. I think every once in a while in elementary Mm -hmm. school. And I remember they would just, like, give you an apple as a snack. What?
2: Did you guys not have this? No. We didn't get apples. (laughs) I remember, (laughs) like, you can...
1: You can order, like, pizza or hot dog, usually, as a choice, or, like, lasagna or something. And then, like, as a snack, you you would get, like, an apple because they needed it to be, like,
0: nutritious or whatever.
2: Oh, we didn't Um, get the nutritious snack. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, no, no. Remember,
0: (laughs) Connie? There was a revolt when they took away the Subway cookies.
2: Oh. Oh, that was scandalous. Yeah,
0: that was really bad. I remember that scandal.
2: Remember they used to give us two cookies, too? (laughs) Wow, those are the days. (laughs) I never had cookies, so you guys had it better than I did. <laughs> you got apples. <laughs> Sorry. Honestly, I was so shocked.
0: And
1: these apples, they, they weren't, sometimes they came as just like one whole ha- apples. I also think they were seasonal and like maybe the school was supporting like Canadian farmers or something okay, like that. That's but good. like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I hope they, that's kind of what they were thinking. But um, also, sometimes these apples came pre sliced in like a plastic package. Oh no. And I was just so confused because they still had their peel on. And, you know, like, I never (laughs) ate the peel when I was at home, like, growing up. So I was like, are you supposed to, like, peel the
2: slices of apple?
1: (laughs) Um, So it's just a lot of culture shock, I think. Yeah.
0: I think like I you reminded me, I know we're spending quite a bit of time on this ses- section, but whatever. You reminded me of like um, when I had, or the first times I went over to my friend's houses for sleepovers in, I think it must've been middle school by then. And their parents would just leave food like out For And just be like, they tell all of the children at their house, oh, like, the cups are in this, like, cupboard, the plates are here, the forks are here, like, here's what's in the fridge, come anytime, feed yourselves, like, Mm -hmm. do whatever, and they just, like, leave and go sit in their rooms and watch TV or something, and... My Mm. friend who was from that house would literally like, she'd just like send us up to get our own things in the kitchen alone. And I felt like (laughs) I was invading like privacy. I was like, why is this family so relaxed? Like what is happening? Um, versus when you go kind of to Asian households, a lot of the times it's, like, over-hospitality sometimes. Oh, for sure. My
1: my parents were – yeah, my mom definitely was like that. Um, She was just excited to see that I had bring home anybody at all, right? And, like, Mm -hmm. especially, like, my white classmates sometimes, like – she would go out of her way to like serve them <laughs> tea or cookies or whatever she thought white
2: people ate I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Same exact experience. I actually um, think this is a good transition to like our topic 2 about reconnecting with food from our own culture because one of the first things that I realized when I started liking my connection with Asian food again was that in Asian culture, food is a lot more about socialization within your family even than compared to white culture. Because like Jenny said, when we'd go to our friends' houses, it's often like they just left food for you rather than there's a set like family dinner time or anything like that. Whereas um, I think in Asian families, that was a bigger thing. I don't know if that was your experience, Josephine.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like when you talk about that, it's pretty much exactly how my experience was. Like growing up, most of the time, um, my family would have dinner together and if my dad was home or if my mom was home from work like we would all sit down at the same table and when my friends came over we definitely all sat down with my friends to Mm -hmm. eat Uh, so it's like a very communal experience whereas I think when I went over to my like white peers houses their parents would let us do whatever we want kind of like similar to your experience And I think that's definitely a part of eating that I missed. um, Mm -hmm. Because I eventually decided to go to school in another province entirely. And, (laughs) you know, I left home with my two giant suitcases and landed in the same university as Jenny. And through that, like, what I missed most when I sort of, like, went through my first semester at school is my mom's cooking. Like, actually, and also my dad's, you know, he would, like, make really, really good salmon. I really miss Mm. that for some reason. It's just these like little things that you didn't know you would miss until Mm -hmm. you don't have it anymore, right?
2: Yeah. I'm sure like there's also a big difference because you started having to cook for yourself. Whereas like when you eat with a family, there's a whole, you know, spread of food usually in Chinese culture with your rice. Yeah, you True. had so much variety and you could share with each other. And then when you're in university, you have to like eat the same meal for many days straight, right? Because <laughs> you, you can't oh, cook like sure. just a little bit for one person.
1: Yeah, I think like Jenny and I were lucky. I think we had the experience of eating at like food halls and stuff um, through our meal plan in first year. Mm-hmm. But I struggled after that. I ate a lot of pasta from canned and jarred sauces... And my meal prep was like that plus broccoli or whatever. So it's definitely very Mm one-dimensional. And I think that's when I started to reevaluate my choices in life. This might sound dramatic, but, you know, I had like achieved this independence that I wanted leaving home and going to school to study the thing that I wanted to study. And I'll add, it's like against some of my parents' wishes too. So I was like, yes, I kind of rebelled finally. I can have my freedom. Um, but now I'm like finding out maybe this freedom isn't what I wanted. And mm-hmm. I don't know if we want to elaborate a lot on this, but Jenny, you can speak to this. Like our school is very predominantly white in our also our <laughs> program. So there is a lot of just like the social cues again from my peers, seeing what is acceptable and what isn't. But at this point, I think I had matured enough to kind of start questioning that. For example, there's like a very popular Vietnamese restaurant and everybody would go get pho there, and I remember my white peers actually recommending that I go to this Vietnamese place. (laughs) Which is, like, fine, because, like, before that, I never really had any Vietnamese food. I just ate my mom and my dad's home cooking. But there's also the incident of kind of a costume party, if
2: you will. Oh, that's what everyone knows your school for, (laughs) to
1: be honest. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, people dressed up in costumes that, were supposed to be reflective of a country but I think it came out as very insensitive and racist Yikes. and you know there were people who dressed up in rice farmer hats and mm-hmm. carried like machine <laughs> like plastic machine guns Oh
2: no! and like
1: what are you supposed to be right like how is this susceptible and how are you still eating out of Vietnamese food place like it, there's just such a disconnect between consumption
2: mm-hmm. of a
1: culture versus like what the culture actually is going through and has gone through for years right so yeah. That was a difficult time, I think, to be non white at our school.
0: <laughs> our school, uh, after we graduated, also had a COVID party.
2: I was just gonna bring that up too. <laughs> <laughs> Your school uh, is truly infamous for these things. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly,
0: it keeps life spicy.
2: It is very mm-hmm. spicy.
1: Uh, but it's also like a very, like, relatively enclosed student community, right? Everybody mm-hmm. kind of lived around the school or in residences. So it is a lot harder to learn. But as a result, I think Jenny and I and our friend group really gravitated towards each other because we we're like some of the only Asian people I knew, <laughs> essentially. And you kind of need that comfort.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in first year, you start by accidentally like falling into a group of like maybe five or six Asians. And then as you go through the years of university, you realize you suddenly know of every Asian within your year, probably. <laughs> yeah, so yep. It's a bubble. For sure.
1: And I think... My also process of reconciliation, like with my food and my culture is like starting to question, you know, is this actually what I want? Like, do I want to be like my peers? Mm-hmm. And the second part was just, you know, this kind of question drove drove me to want to connect with my culture more. So I was very lucky to be able to go on exchange as a part of our program. And I chose to go to Hong Kong because I thought that would bring me closer to mm-hmm. Taiwan to where my relatives are and i got the chance to actually visit them and at that point i hadn't seen my extended family for nine years (laughs) which is crazy because so much can change in nine years Mm -hmm. and i remember like meeting my grandma because we were like going to go eat at a banquet hall and she like invited everybody it was near chinese new year i think and i saw her like waiting for me in front of her house But she didn't recognize me, of course, right? Because I had, like, grown up. up. Yeah. Yeah, and it's been nine years, and I had to, like, introduce myself to my own grandma. (laughs) Which is very interesting. But I think that whole process brought me back in touch with my culture and who I kind of buried all these years ago. Mm -hmm. And in general, I just grew up, right? I, like, started working through mental health. And by extension, a lot of that was for my identity issues and, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome about you know am I actually fitting in or not so a lot of that is very tied together with identity and for me a lot of that manifested through my food choices or you know Mm -hmm. lack of choice in this case
0: yeah that's actually a really important part of like my kind of reconnection too is kind of like after university and going back to or like after I would say the you know puberty times where you're just a turbulent person that just doesn't Mm -hmm. like anything (laughs) since then when i've returned to like china or when i visited japan and korea it's just like a very interesting experience to learn about you know asian culture and like especially in china when you see family and you just like you can almost think about like the life you could have had if (laughs) Mm -hmm. um if your parents didn't you know choose to immigrate and it's a really interesting like way to embrace your other identity and it was really like now I'm kind of like a simp for (laughs) Chinese food because I like yeah I went in like right at the end of university and my taste buds exploded I was (laughs) eating out like every day because delivery is just so cheap so I was like Mm -hmm. trying everything and it was just like the craziest experience of my life and it's funny because um you know that kid that parents always tease for liking white food better
2: yeah, so that's you. Oh, that was you. Yeah, I was that kid,
0: <laughs> and I remember being so offended by that, but it was true in the moment because I was just, you know, a very basic child with like no taste buds, I guess. Not yeah, to be really wrong with liking salt and pepper, greasy but.
2: American food. <laughs> yeah,
1: and I also really liked, you know, aspects of like American or quote unquote North American food. Mm-hmm. Like my sure. mom would make spaghetti. And that's definitely not something I would eat really in Taiwan. But I remember she started making it because um, she like made it once and my brother and I both really enjoyed it. So mm-hmm. I think what parents do a lot of the times in order to connect with their children, like maybe they don't know how to exactly ask for feedback, but she would just cook it over and over again because it had gotten such good reviews from us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah I, th- I think it's definitely like liking different kinds of food. And, like, being reconnected with it is so powerful in the way that you and I kind of did, Jenny. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, like, eating the food that you, like, know is associated with your identity, but also you, like, have never really tried it before. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a fun experience to go through and e- explore that part of yourself and understand this is actually, like, really cool. Like, people actually eat the stuff and live this way. So, yeah, why oh, yeah, can't okay. I? Cool. So, I guess I will talk about my end process in reconciliation. Okay. Uh, I think, like, other than, you know, questioning why I was doing this in the first place, like, disassociating myself from parts of me that I actually want to value, and getting the chance to actually reflect on it and, like, be in touch with it again. One of the more important things also, I think, that was happening throughout maybe the late 2000s and early, like, 2010s, is there's, like, more and more food trends that made eating different kinds of food cool like on Mm -hmm. Instagram for example everybody can be a foodie now you know if you just take pictures of your food and also there's a growing online communities that sort of gave people like you and I who are a part of the Asian diaspora like kind of from a same region but we have such different experiences the chance to kind of communicate and like connect online and there was never really like a forum like that before um, that was as popular I think but that was a nexus for me to kind of see what other people are doing and be able to say, hey, like, I identify with this. I also went through this. So it's cool you're on the other side of the world, but we can share this together. So that's mm-hmm. definitely something that, like, drew me to explore food a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Also, there's just a lot more of these chefs and food writers and mainstream media, right, who have been working, like, forever, but they haven't received really the recognition until, like, at this time when, you know, people are talking about it more and these restaurants are being reviewed and all of these things are happening. So I think we kind of grew up in this era where maybe it was like the transition of like immigrant or like other cultures of food. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to go through that as a process of like rediscovering myself. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. It's interesting to think of how a lot of kids these days will, oh, I sound so old, in like (laughs) at least urban areas will grow up, like be able to Like, show off the food that they bring to school, maybe. Because of, like, the rise of, you know... Like, I'm on the cooking side of TikTok, for example. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to see these people share, like, not just the food, but the techniques that go behind it. Yeah. I guess our last episode was about cultural appropriation. But one aspect that I do actually really enjoy is I see more and more kind of, like, white chef influencers online Mm -hmm. who are actually cooking Asian food correctly. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's actually a really great thing to see because I, like, I've tried before to follow, like, some meal prep apps, like, Chinese food stuff, and it tasted so bad. Like, it was (laughs) so bad. And, like, it's great to see people starting to cook things correctly for once, you know? Um, And respecting where the cuisine is coming from, so...
2: And I strangely love, like, I have a really big soft spot for fusion foods. However, we talked in the cultural appropriation episode about how it's a little more iffy when white chefs do it. But Mm -hmm. then there's like famous chefs like David Chang right now who are using their Asian roots to make fusion food. And to me, like, because it's part of both of our identities, I just really appreciate fusion Mm -hmm. foods.
1: For sure, yeah. I think it also needs to be said that a lot of these is like popularized by Mm -hmm. white people. Like we've existed and our culture kind of has existed on the other side of the ocean all these years. And before people were like, ew, what are you eating? And now they're like, (laughs) oh, wow, that's so cool. You're eating that. And they want to adapt that. So I think that's a lot of where the appropriation comes from. But it definitely helps to have like a diversity and representation and also just like You know, white people being, like, respectful of where Mm -hmm. the food and the culture comes from. I think that's, like, more and more readily available nowadays. Yeah, and a lot of it, I would say, also is more represented by, I think, the male side of it. Um, What I see a lot is still, like, immigrant women bearing a lot of the burden of child-rearing and, you know, all these household things. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're seeing a lot of, like, male celebrity chefs still. I would say like they're like more popular than you know your regular moms Mm -hmm. who have blogs and stuff so one of the things i actually started to do um bring it back to like kind of my process of coming to terms with my own food is i started to follow like these mommy bloggers on instagram (laughs) and like most of them have their own websites too like monchi obviously is like a very well-known one for korean cuisine Mm -hmm. um she's also an immigrant herself but there's actually so many food blogs by these, like, Asian moms from, you know, various parts, like, from China, from Taiwan, Japan, Korea, like, India, like, even the Philippines, mm-hmm. like.
0: I can speak for that, because we grew up in Ottawa, and there's, like, this Asian mom blog that, yeah, she's so candidly, so I think her friend created the Instant Pot, and then yeah. her blog wow. single-handedly advertised that Instant Pot to where it is today.
1: Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Yeah.
0: Like, my mom had an OG Instant Pot, and we just watched this company grow. It was so funny. My flex is I went to crazy. high school with her
2: son. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> like, see, like it's like this kind of stuff, and this is all because of the popularization by immigrants, right? Like, mm. there was a need for, like, food like this that people wanted— and I actually didn't know that about the Instant Pot, so that's super cool. I didn't
0: know it was Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> so we've kind of been dancing around. Like, I think we've been in between two topics for a while now. <laughs> so we'll just go straight into, like, kind of where we are today in our um, journey with, like, embracing our double food identity or, like, our food identity from, like, our original, I guess, the where are you from side of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me personally, it kind of feels like a homecoming in the way because as I said, I kind of deliberately threw away or buried these parts of me that I thought wasn't acceptable. Mm -hmm. But now I'm rediscovering that I actually really value this part of me. So it's kind of a continuous process of learning about my own culture and relearning it through the context of today. For example, for me, I developed kind of an interest in like more culturally specific foods through baking as a hobby. Mm -hmm. I think we all know that I have a baking Instagram by now, and also I started to gen- transition to eating mostly plant-based diet. And I think these two are like really important things for me because I think baking I had learned here in Canada as a part of like the Home X mm-hmm. class. Ooh. I don't know if you guys went through that, but in no. high school they like make you do sewing and cooking and all this stuff. Did you guys have to take? that actually
2: uh, removed? The- yeah, <laughs> they removed that program. Oh.
1: Yeah, I can understand why they would. But that was, like, one of the, like, first things I actually enjoyed in school here is actually cooking. And obviously, they weren't cooking, like, you know, ethnic, (laughs) quote-unquote, food. But, you know, I was learning how to make, like, bran muffins and how to cook fish and, like, all this other stuff. So I was, like, really interested in baking, particularly. Mm -hmm. And towards the end of my time in school, I actually started doing that. I, like, set up a challenge for myself, which is why my Instagram became what it is. It actually was a challenge that I set for myself to make, I think, 50 recipes Mm. or something in the course of, like, a whole year, which is a lot if you consider that we're, like, full-time students. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I also am very passionate about environmentalism, and that's why I was like, okay, I want to transition to a plant-based diet. But if you think about it, a lot of sort of the foods that I had come in contact with as a result of, like, being Asian or Chinese... Is actually already vegetarian Mm -hmm. or vegan, even in India, like it's very popular to have a variety of different, like vegetable based foods, um, yeah, because of like different religions and cultures, right? But I like had never considered eating that growing up, Mm -hmm. you know, that was just like something I knew that like maybe Buddhist monks do, and you know, maybe like people who go to the temple or whatever, like sometimes they eat mock meat and all this stuff, but my family was. We didn't eat just vegetables. Mm -hmm. So I never was in touch with that part of my culture. But now I can explore it because, you know, I have time and why the hell not? I'm learning, right? I think it's through those two things that I really started to feel like I have a better grasp on my identity through food. Mm -hmm. And it's also something that I use to connect with my family and my parents. And it's through this like cultural appreciation Of the food, but also of them, right? Because they are the ones who kind of provided me with this growing up. And now I recognize kind of their efforts as immigrant parents. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they'll be glad to hear that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had the same experience as you when I kind of like, when I cook for myself, it's also mostly like plant based. And Mm -hmm. it just like opens your world to like Indian and Middle Eastern spices that you would have never like used before and then you realize that like you know steak with salt and pepper is actually like pretty sad when you ever taste it
1: yeah yeah i think like it's becoming also just more popular right to eat plant-based in the west but it has such a long history in asia in like southeast asia Mm -hmm. and i actually started eating just like regular salads and you know i had a lot of chickpeas and tofu Mm -hmm. and stuff but like, we were just actually, before we recorded, talking about the various types of bean curd. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, we just all kind of talk, call it tofu, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the same, but there's like so many different kinds of tofu in Asia. So it's really fun to discover all that stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were in fact talking about that. I think we asked Josephine how her day was, and then she started talking to us about... Um, Suji. <laughs> yeah, Suji. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, which is, like, the direct translation is, like, vegetarian chicken, yeah. I think. Yeah, But the, the, the one I had, at least on the package, it was just, like, a spiced bean curd. It has, like, texture that makes it kind of, like, meaty, but it's still, like, tofu-like, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Anyways, I'm not the expert. I didn't grow up eating this stuff, so it's <laughs> fun for me to, like, cook it once in a while and, like, experiment with it. So I enjoy that, um, and that's kind of how I'm learning these days. And also, like, traveling back to... Taiwan like I got to revisit my family again and do kind of like a round island trip because Taiwan's like an island nation Mm -hmm. um so I got to go on this kind of like discovery journey where I ate a lot of food Mm -hmm. because I think that's one of the highlights of being able to travel for sure (laughs) and I have a story about like a tofu dessert vendor that I want to share Mm -hmm. and I think it's funny because like we eat a lot of like soy products right tofu and like all this stuff but Dohua is like something I really liked as a kid. Ooh, it's kind of this yeah. like silky soft. It's kind of like tofu, but the texture is a bit softer and you often eat it with ginger syrup and you can get mm-hmm. like toppings like pearls or um, red beans or like I think peanuts is like one of them. Mm-hmm. So I like really like this dessert when I was younger and there was like a vendor selling it on the street, like right by where I lived. And... I decided to go for it and i ordered literally every single topping the guy had i think he had (laughs) like red bean green bean like mung bean like you know like all this stuff and i was like okay like just like give me all of it he like kind of looked at me like flabbergasted and said wow like this is like probably the most expensive (laughs) <laughs> bowl of Douhua I've ever sold <laughs> and I just thought that was so funny because now I, I like get to do this kind of stuff that might be kind of strange to you know people from Taiwan but I'm doing this because like I generally enjoy it and now there's like no kind of shame associated with it mm-hmm. and it's really good if you haven't had it you should try Douhua.
2: I love Chinese desserts
1: it's like <laughs> so you know good. how
2: Chinese parents don't like it when American desserts are too sweet mm-hmm. so like it is, like, a nice change sometimes when you're all you're having is, like, cake and cookies or whatever. Chinese desserts are, like, lighter and, yeah. like, fragrant. <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but, like, it's not just, like, insane amount of sugar. Sugar and fat and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think it's just, like, more nuanced. in a lot of um, Asian cooking, even in, like, Chinese cooking and Indian cooking, is, like, this idea of, like, wellness as a philosophy mm-hmm. for life, right? So that, like, transitions to cooking a lot, I think. So I also, like, grew up, Eating a lot of, like, red bean soup, which is supposed to Mm -hmm. be good for you if you're female and you menstruate, apparently. (laughs) Um, I think this process right now is, like, me just realizing I don't have to choose between these, like, splitting parts of me. It's like, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you need food to survive, but also, like, it's so much more than that, and you can decide what that means for you. So I had fun kind of deciding what that means for me, and I think I will continue to do that until probably I die. Because you need to eat food all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wanted to kind of go back to what Connie was saying about Asian, or at least from what I know, East Asian desserts being relatively like less on the sugar and fat side. And near the beginning of the pandemic, I went into a binge of the Great Canadian Baking Show. Um, oh yeah, and I, <laughs> I was, joined like, you on baking that a storm um, every time I watched an episode because it just made me like so tempted. But I actually credit the um, Great Canadian Baking Show for bringing on a ton of diversity with their contestants. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing that I've noticed over and over again between the three seasons that are so far up is that the structure and like the challenges that they choose for this show are still largely imbalanced in terms of the diversity. So these contestants that are coming up that are immigrants don't grow up around these like Western baking techniques. So Mm-hmm. Like it's a significantly harder show for them to go on and compete in because there's like these technical challenges where you just have to guess what something is by like little instructions, and like these kids did not grow up with you know like digestive cookies and bird cake. So I don't even
1: know what that is. Yeah. So some <laughs> yeah, of the what's other people. Battenberg
0: cake. <laughs> it's like checkered. It's so weird. But, um, oh okay. Okay. Yeah. So like some of these people get the recipe and they can right away like think about the time where they ate something like that, you know, and then mm. a few of like the people of color just are like have no idea what they're trying to recreate yeah Um, so it's like always yeah it's always interesting to see like you know that those challenges are gonna screw up like the people who didn't grow up in those backgrounds Mm -hmm. i will say they made a recent attempt with having mochi but oh that was funny to see
2: the tables turn because (laughs) then like the white people didn't know what a mochi looked like yeah (laughs) i I don't know what this end product's supposed to be like (laughs) oh no
1: I, like, had a similar experience, but it was when I first started doing my baking challenge, I based it off of a book that Mm -hmm. had these, like, basic recipes, I think, but a lot of the basic recipes I didn't even really know or, like, ate, you know, like, there's, like, Victoria sponge, and, like, I feel like that's also not as popular in North America, Mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't know what that was. And, you know, I had to find out coffee cake actually, most of the time, doesn't have coffee in it. It's just a cake you eat with coffee. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, so, like, <laughs> I it's, the same it's definitely interesting. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really about, like, finding what you want to experiment with or eat. And then just, like, going for it because mm-hmm. nobody can really judge you now. Mm-hmm. Um and I think broader trends over the year, like over the pandemic, have really taught people that there is a desire for reconnection, and a lot of people connect through like food, right? Like think about like going to restaurants with you know your loved ones and your friends. Like that was my primary form of social activity like before the pandemic, and the fact that you don't have that now is definitely like a minus in your life. I think, um, at least for me, it is. And yeah. a lot of people actually started gardening because there was a fear of food running out. Um, Last year, I think in Toronto, at least all the stores sold out of seeds, because Mm -hmm. people were in such a scramble to like, be able to control their own food supply. Because you know, like toilet paper was getting sold out, you couldn't get flour anywhere. So I think there's just this realization that like, a lot of our supply chains and like all the food around us can be really precarious. And People want to be able to control that. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of ties into the overall process of the learning I'm doing, too. I'm actually starting my balcony garden for the first time this oh,
0: year. So. Sounds so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Wish me luck. Good luck. I always watch that one um, Vietnamese lady on YouTube. I don't know if you've seen her. The one with a balcony yes. vegetable garden. Crazy.
1: Totally. She inspires <laughs> me. Honestly, that's one of the reasons why I decided to go for it. I mentioned that I am passionate about the environment and also um, increasingly over the past year I've been educating myself on all of these other issues Mm -hmm. so it's not really just about the environment now for me I kind of see it as a whole like with you know wealth inequality um, racial discrimination and all these other things and I think food is so interesting because everybody should have access to it as a human right but a lot of the times you don't and even Mm -hmm. if you do it might not be the food that is culturally appropriate for you right? Yeah. So like, there's a lot of power structures going on, um, in the food and agricultural industries because we live in such a capitalist and globalized society. And you know, there's um, a lot of talk with immigrant farmers that actually are experiencing higher rates of COVID because they don't mm-hmm. really have the protections for them as mm-hmm. migrant workers. Yeah. Um. There's also lots of urban food deserts, and you know, people are freaking out about not being able to get flour well. These people, in a good year, like, they can't get fresh groceries. Like, that's a really big problem. Yeah. And I'm just learning about all of that now. So I think it's, like, a really good way to examine the world and the structures of the world and just ask, like, why is this the way it is? Like, why can't we make it better? And why can't we give people what they deserve to eat? I think these questions are really worth exploring.
0: Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's me.
0: (laughs) I can continue off of that. I wrote here that I've started fusion cooking and baking. That is not the right way to put Mm. it. I mean by, like, I don't combine the recipes or anything, but I just, like, kind of have been exploring the world of food. And a while ago, when Connie and I were still posting on my YouTube, um, (laughs) we started making recipes by alphabetical order of the countries. And that was, like, very interesting to learn about these like different cooking techniques and all these different ingredients. And uh-huh. actually like this weekend I got a delivery in like in my mailbox because I had just wrapped up a rollout at work and my co-workers having remembered that I'm really passionate about like trying different kinds of cooking gifted mm-hmm. me a copy of um, the immigrant cookbook and it's all these recipes that are put together by immigrant chefs in America.
1: Wow. Yeah, I'm definitely a loyal follower of your YouTube channel, which <laughs> cooking some of your food with Connie. And, like, I, I do think, like, you know, fusion, quote-unquote, cooking, I think a lot of people have different feelings about it. But, again, like, I, I think you should just cook the food you want. Um, mm-hmm. As long as yeah. it's, like, done in a respectful way and you're learning about these new techniques and new ingredients, like, nobody can fault you for it. And fusion cooking is also a really good way to learn how to cook, so... I'm so excited for you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. That's a good point, though, like, about learning about the cultures because that was a big takeaway when we kind of made some stuff from, like, Algeria and, like, all these different Mm. um, countries Mm -hmm. because, like, when you go on those blogs and you know how, like, there's the meme about how you have to scroll for, like, five minutes before you get over the life story and you hit like the recipe (laughs) but like when I cook those foods I just read the life story and I just like learn all about like their cultures and stuff and I think it's so cool. I was
2: going to say that I think food is a great tool to be able to connect with other cultures and I think Mm -hmm. now that our world is so much smaller oftentimes the first step that someone can take into like understanding an unfamiliar culture more is by trying their food And so I think I've developed some sort of motto to, like, not knock it till I've tried it. And, like, the only food I dislike in this world is cheese. Unfortunately, (laughs) I just cannot stand it for, like, personal trauma reasons and, like, the fact that I'm lactose intolerant. But anything else, like, I will try. And to be honest, I hardly find foods I don't like. And so that's my way of learning more about other cultures. Except everything with cheese. (laughs) (laughs) I used to Uh, love cheese, but I think, like, I had a bad reaction to it because of lactose issues, and then... Oh, no. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely understandable, (laughs) right? And it's more about, like, I think the openness to experience than really, like, having to force yourself to do, you know, these things you don't want to do. Again, I think food is largely about choice, Mm -hmm. and you're right. Like, I learned about so many new cultures also through food, too. I just think it's, like, so interesting, and if you think about history and, like, all this other stuff behind food, you can, like... Mm -hmm get whole degrees in the stuff Um, yeah like food is definitely more than survival I think it has connections to like we we talked about how it's like socializing with one another and kind of like eating together forms like a sense of community in our cultures Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: like I think it's also a way that you can like express or receive love I think I definitely got a lot of that from my parents now I'm just trying to like appreciate that and also just a way to maintain your personal well-being you know cultivate like nostalgia like I think we all have childhood foods that we really like and I think it's Mm -hmm. cool to be able to re-explore it and the final thing I thought of is actually for me at least it's like a way for me to exercise my values because I kind of talked about wanting to eat plant-based and I know Jenny you have a similar experience but for a lot of people food is like very tied with their religion or politics too Mm -hmm. and I think that's totally okay like It's, again, all about your choice. And it's really cool that food is like all of these things and it'll continue to evolve. And that makes me very excited as someone who eats food.
0: (laughs) uh... (laughs) Okay, well, that was a really good way to wrap up the uh, topic. Do you have any recommendations for us?
1: I think in terms of recommendations, I've really enjoyed like just finding new people to follow that's kind Mm -hmm. of working in food or like they're just like everyday people posting on Mm -hmm. social media. And I will give a shout out to George from Shade George. Mm -hmm. He's like a Taiwanese boy who is, I believe, trained in culinary school, but now he does a lot of like Taiwanese vegan recipes that are like mind-blowing. And I've never really seen the technique really popularized anywhere else. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've made a few of his recipes like there was one that was like a fried tofu kind of stir fry. Mm-hmm.
0: And I never mm-hmm.
1: made tofu that way before. It's so interesting because it's vegan, right? But it tastes so good.
0: Um, I do indeed always see him on my TikTok feed.
1: <laughs> yeah, he makes a lot of TikToks for sure. Yeah. And he got really I think popular. I know who you're
0: talking
1: whole, about. <laughs> yeah, subtle Asian traits thing. Like, I think he like went viral a little bit. So I enjoy mm-hmm. him, his content right a lot. Um, and another thing, if I can recommend two different things.
0: Sure. Yeah, of course.
1: Is... Anime.
0: I've been looking <laughs> into it
1: nowadays and there's like two I want to recommend. One is Flavors of Youth. Um and the other one is Shabukeki no Soma Food Wars and you can find um... both of that on the Canadian Netflix, I think. Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah.
0: Connie and I also may may or may not have gotten a Crunchyroll subscription last week. Ooh, so Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Oh my gosh. But yeah, I have been eyeing those two animes for a while now so yeah uh, this is good motivation. food wars yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah flavors of youth always has these like like people take clips of food from that movie because it's so appetizing um mm. uh,
2: and it's told in like short story format so i think it's very digestible so nice. flavors of youth is a movie as food wars an anime like show though i think yeah okay yeah. Okay. it has a couple
1: seasons um opinions vary on how good it is near the end but I think it's interesting because it's like such a different way to learn about food and I think it's very educational
2: so nice yeah definitely I'll check it out
0: well, thanks for coming, Josephine. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry for being verbose.
2: I feel like this is really long. No, no that is good. the point
0: of a podcast. I also think that <laughs> you've fair. taken the chance to semi-tease what the next topic would be if we had you on again. Oh my so gosh, So we'll let what people guess to that.
2: I don't even know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Let's see if the listeners know better than Josephine what she's going to be on here <laughs> Oh next gosh. time that's so funny anyways this was really fun you guys thanks for having me thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed our discussion on this week's topic to hear more you can subscribe to the bicultural identity on apple podcast spotify or wherever you get your podcast from while you're at it we'd also greatly appreciate any reviews on itunes or simply sharing our podcast with your family and friends but of course no pressure as well any opinions and experiences discussed are solely based on our own experiences as second gens we invite you to engage with us on our Instagram at the Bicultural Identity, where you can also find the link to our website with our show notes. Thanks again for listening and be sure to tune in next Monday for our next episode. See you then!